97 South's Storytellers features conversations with professional songwriters and seeks to pull back the curtain on the art, craft, and career of songwriting. We'll bring you to those magical moments of creativity that have delivered the inspiring songs that make up the soundtrack of our lives. I'm Paul McGuire, and here's part two of my conversation with Bob Ezrin. So these projects that we mentioned, um, The Wall and some Nine Inch Nails projects, tend to be grand-themed things, uh, no matter if it's the ideas at the root of them may be universal. What about breaking it down just to a single song, like a single pop song or a single rock and roll song? Is it the same general approach to a three-minute song versus a thematic album? Is it still the same kind of approach that you need to take, beginning, middle, end? Let's get to it. Yeah, it's a story. Yeah. Songs are stories. Songs are voyages, you know, and it's really good if you have uh, a clear vision of the, of the story you're telling and then the song succeeds in getting all of those ideas across from beginning to end. Or sometimes it's just one idea and the song succeeds at doing it in a really, in, you know, inventive or catchy way. That's great. Yeah. And then if you have a bunch of those but they're each of them in their own right, like a scene in a film. Each scene, in, in, you know, when you're talking about film or theater, each scene has to work. It has a beginning, yeah. a middle, and an end. And then it's part of an act, which is part of the whole thing. Yeah. And maybe it's my, you know, maybe it's coming out of theater in a certain way that I do think in terms of, of I do think in terms of scenes. It's not just theater, it's film too. I took a film course at Ryerson for five minutes until I got sidetracked into working. But it was it was enough, you know, I really wanted to make movies. I really wasn't expecting to do this other stuff for a living. Really? Yeah. How old how old were you when you wanted to make movies? How when when did that start? Um well, I went and saw my first movie at the age of 4 with my grandfather who took me to see The Greatest Show on Earth with Charlton Heston in um cinem- yeah. Cinemascope and, you know, Technicolor or whatever it was called. Yeah at the time, and it just blew my mind. The size of it, the power of it, the sound of it. The world that was created that didn't exist otherwise, yeah. The world that they created, and even though it was, you know, when you think back to on that film, it was a pretty dark film for a little kid of four, you know, but um, I wasn't, you know, the darkness in a way, you know, was just something that I kind of swept to the side because I was still just so in love with the color and and the light and the um, and the romance of it, you know. Yeah. And um, he's also the guy who taught me how to sing and dance. My grandfather was a an amateur vaudevillian. He was a song and dance man. Yeah. He was a linotype operator by day and a song and dance man by night. In the, I wish I knew what the, the former was. What's a linotype operator? Linotype, see? That's a long, yeah, long time ago. That typesetter, yeah. a person who worked okay. in a printing press. Okay, yep. Put, so actually moving the letters move around, letters those letters around. Stuff yep. and, you know, press things. Excellent. Yeah. I just hadn't heard linotype. It was actually, before. a linotype was actually a new way of doing it. It was a technology thing where you could, you know, you could actually arrange stuff using, not computerized by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. but... Um, anyway, so yeah, he did that, and um, he taught me how to sing and dance, and took me to see my first movie, and so I just fell in love with all of it, you know, with performance, with big screens. Storytelling. Storytelling. And then when I was five, I had polio, and luckily, you know, my dad's a doctor, 
was a doctor. And at that time, he was a resident doing his specialty. And, but it was my mother who, being the wife of a doctor, is usually smarter than the doctor themselves. So my mother <laughs> said, you know, because all these kids are getting polio. Bobby's got uh, a fever. I'm worried that this is polio. And so um, she decided to keep me home and not let me run around, keep me still. So for a period of time there, I was plopped in front of the television. And I was just watching television all day long. For, you know, my little Margie from, from that to Circus Boy to, you know, the, those primitive old Westerns and things like that. Yeah. And the Howdy Doody show. But I was watching all this TV and this production and it was just imprinting on me, you know. And then... I got better. Luckily, my mom caught it before I could damage myself. Wow. Wow. And amazing. It is amazing. How long were you, how long were you uh, immobilized for by It your didn't mom? take that long. You know, I think it was, really? you know, maybe it was three, four weeks or something like that, you know. I mean, a long time for a five-year-old, but... Of course, of course, of course. But, uh, you know, a drop in the bucket. Yes, really. a drop in the bucket. And, and then, at, once I got better, the television broke. And they took the guts of the TV out. And in those days, it, you'd have this piece of furniture with a hole there, and the TV would be the stuff that was stuck inside of it with a screen and everything. They took it away. So now there was a stage for me. There was my own screen. So I got in the TV, and I would do my own shows for my Come on. Yeah, for my little brothers and for It's time for pantomime. And Let's for go. my girlfriend yeah. next door, Caroline Seifman, <laughs> who ended up who ended up marrying David Cronenberg. Come on. And it, it is his late late wife. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, she passed away from cancer very sadly. Oh, my way goodness. too young and uh but yeah. she was my first girlfriend and so i would put on shows inside that television and, and they took out the cathode ray tube and then took, you stuck your head they in took there out, well not just because it was a console tv they took out all the guts yeah. it wasn't just the cathode ray tube but the amplifier and all that and it left a big hole yeah. just big enough for a five-year-old to get in and do shows Look at you. You couldn't help yourself. You no. were born to do it. Yeah. It's incredible. And my parents were both musicians. My dad worked his way through school playing bass in the Bobby Jimmy Orchestra. And, okay. um, and another coincidence, this is all Toronto geography, right? My dad, yep. you know, then he graduated medicine and he, he was still playing for a while until he saw some of his patients in the crowd and he started feeling like they're going to think he's not a very good doctor if he has to play <laughs> at night. So he, you know, he quit playing in the jazz band oh that's a shame it's yeah. a shame and he was yeah. he was the bass player and the job went to jack richardson oh my god look at that who didn't know my dad my dad didn't know him and and neither of them knew that that had happened we only found that out garth and i found that out like years and years later jack's son garth so at the i guess it was the junos in 2004 i had i flew my dad up and Jack was there and Garth was there. And so it was the, you know, Ezrin father, son and Richardson father, son. And we got together. It was so sweet to see them together, the two of them. Just great. Nice to be able to provide that for him. That's great. Mm. That's, those are good moments. There's a story right there, man. You are. You're a storyteller. Even when we're, we're breaking it down, talking about the art, the story of your life is quite something as well. If I can ask you to be the educator, what are some of the mistakes 
or maybe a major mistake, the number one mistake that somebody makes when they're getting ready to write a song or when they're writing a song? Well, it's got to be a there got to be a couple that come to mind. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's lots of mistakes that people make when they yeah. sit down to write a song. Um, but one of the biggest mistakes that people are making today, right now, they write big, long intros into their songs. And that that's, there are no intros anymore. This goes back to when the Beatles, if you look at their singles, their singles started with the chorus. They just came out of nowhere into the song, right? And you knew, A, it announced itself. B, it was the most memorable part of the song. C, it told you the story it was about to tell. Yeah. And then it told the story. So in a way, every song is actually the conclusion of the film and then flashbacks and then a repeat of the conclusion and then more flashbacks. And then sometimes if there's a middle section, whether it's a you break down and you have a hip hop section of the song and somebody talks or whether it's a musical bridge or something, sometimes it's a deeper look at the character or a supporting explanation of the primary premise of the song. That's what a song, you know, great song is. It's like a movie, you know, and the, some of the most effective films we've ever seen, you see the end and then you go back and then it goes two months earlier, right? And then you go back and you start. They use it in, uh, you know, prestige television shows now all, all the time. The some time. big car crash, you're like, oh my God. And then six months earlier. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, thinking of a song in those terms, you want it, you want to take your best shot early, like right off the bat. Uh, one of the other great mistakes that people make in songwriting is in using language that is not conversational. That's a huge mistake. A lot of people, you know, get really artsy fartsy and they get, you know, they try to be really smart and they come up with, you know, language that just is awkward. Yeah. And you know, or they're just bad at writing. You know, sometimes you just have bad writers who just string the wrong words together and everything. And then I make them stop and I go, OK, just say that out loud. Would you please say that out loud? And they say it out loud, and they feel pretty self-satisfied. And I go, have you ever in your life heard anyone string those words together like that before? And now, look, if, if you string it together in a way that no one's ever heard, and it's like super, way cool. Yeah. And it's just something that, you know, I mean, 99 Problems is, is a really good example. I, I don't even want to glorify the concept yeah. by repeating it. But the, but the lyric, those words that for that phrase was just like what i've never heard that before <laughs> nobody's ever said that wow is that cool so yeah. um, that's okay too but if you're you know if it's just bad language it doesn't string together it's not conversational nobody could say it out loud and make it believable and stuff then chances are it's not going to work as a lyric that's that's an important thing you, you said start with your best stuff as well, which is interesting because I think sometimes um, musicians, they weren't, oh man, man, when we get to this, this is really going to wow them. But you're like, no, wow them right off the bat. Wow them now. Don't bury the lead, mm -hmm. man. Now, sometimes you're, sometimes that can be a, a riff, right? So, yeah. um, you know, speaking of Eddie Van Halen, you know, some of the guitar riffs that he wrote were so compelling that they were one of the great hooks of the song, or they were the hook of the yep. song. So just playing the guitar riff and then going into the song, that's okay too, if the if it's hooky-hooky. Uh, ACDC is a good example of that as well. Very much so. Yeah. But in a hip-hop and pop world, which is where we live right now, you know, your best bet is to get to the point right off the bat. Like, just yeah. get to it. And, and then back up, you know, two months earlier, 
and tell the story that leads up to that thing. And the other thing I think, you know, in songwriting is to think that people really give a shit how you think or feel, right? So writing things yeah. in the first person, there's a lot of people that go, in my mind, I hate that phrase. You know, oh. it's something right in my mind. I'm going, get out. <laughs> I don't care about your mind. <laughs> you're, you're taking my time and you're talking to yeah. me about something. Now, yes, you know, there are always exceptions. If you are um, Kendrick Lamar, I want to know what's going on in your head. I do. Yeah. And people. I have to already be interested in you, though. But I'm very interested in you. And I yeah. think that you have yeah. a point of view that's like really nuts and special and like off the charts brilliant so yes i do want to hear what you have to say but for the most part in terms of like in terms of pop music it's more important that you, you yes express yourself absolutely but in a way that is familiar to and resonates with the audience so just talking about how you feel and all the stuff you've gone through if it is if it's weird and it doesn't relate it can be brilliant 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 but I, you know, and I don't want to criticize anybody, but there are, you know, no, I know what you mean. You know what I mean, right? So I'm not going to, you know, it, it's funny though. I mean, you, I think you'll admit that sometimes there are songs that are written uh, autobiographically, particularly in the country world um, where a specific event has taken place or uh, whatever that, that the person I've heard artists, writers tell me um, that I wrote about this thing and never thought about releasing it. It was just a personal thing that I wrote. Then my manager convinced me or somebody convinced me to release it and it became one of my biggest hits. And it was about this very specific thing that happened to me. Why did the manager or somebody else convince them to release it? Because they heard it and it touched them. They Yeah, exactly. You know, it, yeah. it they related to it. So that's what I'm saying. Unless it relates to or, you know, the the listener, you know, something that's specific to you and 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 doesn't touch people is going to be less likely, not impossible, everything's possible, yeah. but it'll be less likely to, you know, to, to really move and to really succeed. The people that you've worked with over the years, uh, the range, man, you got range. I'm sure you've heard people say that before. It is, it's quite incredible. Is there a commonality in, in the people that you've really had success with, that you've worked with, that you notice? Is there a drive? Is it focus? Is it ambition? Is it a combination of all of the above? Obviously, the artistry is at the highest level. But is there is there a commonality there? Well, there's a, there are several commonalities. You know, one yeah. of them is competence, right? That I've been so lucky to work with some of the very best people at their craft in the entire world. And sometimes they don't even know they are, but they are. So that's, you know, that's one common thing. I think in 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 every case, there's an element of the dramatic with everybody I've ever worked with. That's interesting. You know, so it's probably why I didn't get to do, you know, a lot of jazz or something. Yes, I've got range, but I haven't really. But these are people that are, they're storytellers. That, that I think is, that's a unifying factor. And there absolutely is uh, fire and just obsess, obsessive nature and a refusal to settle amongst all all of them there's like none of them would go okay that's close enough let's move on i'm always the one who has to say okay that's close enough let's let's move on um dramatic i like that yeah but they are dramatic like personalities all of them have you has anybody ever called you a dramatic personality oh, yeah. or are you the are you the calming <laughs> person oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> really yeah yeah 
I have to inhabit the character along with the person who's playing it or the person who is it. Sometimes they're not playing at all. That's just who they are. And I have to, to understand them, I have to inhabit that character with them. I mean, Alice will tell you, you know, when, when it, uh, you know, we've had 53 years of friendship and, and working together, yeah. with a few small gaps in there. But um, Alice Cooper, for those listening. Alice Cooper. Yeah. And he will say that I understand the Alice Cooper character better than anyone. And, I, and very often we have conversations where I go to Alice Cooper. Alice wouldn't say that. Alice would say this or Alice would not. And, and he goes, yeah, you're right. You know, and I really understand the people that I work with. I think I, I like to think and, and I know I've, I have failed at this uh, several times in the past, but, you know, by accident almost. But I like to think that I get to understand the performers that I work with so well that I, I change me to adapt to their project and to make it all about them. It's always all about them. There's a, there was a situation um, many, many years ago, I was working with Rod Stewart and I had an engineer who I won't name. And, um, and the guy was, he was really starting to get on my nerves because he was not being conscious of what was going on in the room on the other side of the glass and the performers you know what was happening to them and like part of what i teach is that with this ear you have to listen to everything any one of the performers is saying when you hear somebody say well i really don't like my bass sound you got to be the first person to get on the talk back you know i'm not really sure about that bass sound and it makes them feel safe and, and attended to you know they know that they're Heard. not out there it's that even before they say it you know yeah. out loud you you hear it and i would say and then with this ear you have to listen to the producer and everything he does and then with this ear you have to you know that's always a joke but <laughs> sure so this guy was just not getting it like you there were things happening on the floor he was not hearing it and one time rod took off his headphones near the microphone and caused a blast of feedback and everybody yes. jumped back. We all did. It was like, oh, my God. And this guy hits the talk back and goes, don't you ever put your headphones near the microphone. And I slapped his hand off the thing. And I went, don't you ever talk to an artist like that, ever. And he says, you know what? I'm getting tired of all this. You make it feel like, like we're a piece of shit. And they're all that matters. I said, I got news for you, buddy. If they're not out there, you don't have a job. So yes, they are all that matters. And it is something that I've observed with the best, you know, the best of the best is that, you know, we're stewards of, you know, these, we become the stewards of these people's projects and, and yeah. we are there to help. No, we're not there to, to supersede or to overwhelm. And, and, it is to their advantage and ours if they perform really well, right? I mean, it's just, it's like a no-brainer. If they don't do well, we don't have a record and or we yeah. don't have a film or we don't have a play. So how do you get the best out of people? What's the best way to get people to perform? Um, yell at them? Yeah, that works. <laughs> no. You know, yeah. um, no, the best way is to is to hold your arms out and say, fall backwards, I got you. Don't be afraid, I have you. And I hear everything that you're, you know, that's one thing that the one recurring theme when I'm working with people is like, man, you hear everything. And I go, thank you. But yeah, I do. I hear everything and I see everything because that's my job. 
My job is to make sure that I'm attending to them. And so you, to attend, you have to be attentive, right? Their egos are slightly more fragile than most people. Actually, the truth is everybody's like that. We're all children and we all, you know, we all still worry about whether we're good enough and whether our dad approves. And that's the other thing. It's like if I can be dad on a session and show approval. Yeah. And even more than approval, if I can show pride and, you know, and, and belief in them, it just goes so far towards them being able to relax that part of their psyche and, and go for it, really just go for it without fear. I love that. Well, they're in, they're in a vulnerable position when you're Hugely. a performer, you're yeah. on stage when everybody's, okay, everybody be quiet. We're going to record the drum tracks now. Hugely. No I, matter if you're John Bonham, you are going to, you know, there's got to be some, some nerves there. Hugely. Every single, every yeah. single performer I've ever worked with. And some of them are really more facile than others. And yes, they're more relaxed. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they're not relaxed about the results. They want the best thing ever. And they're self-critical on those levels. And yeah. Anyway, yes. I'm thinking back to just what you said earlier and about being put in that room with the eight tracks. Are you still that guy, that 20-year-old kid that was put in that room? Or yeah, I love it. I do my own mixing uh, most of the time on uh, some projects, you know, they have somebody that's already baked into their organization and, and sure. that person mixes. I hate it. <laughs> I just hate it. <laughs> but it's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, this is my favorite part of everything, you know, build this whole thing. And then I just want to put it together, you know, the way, because I do have a, a sound or a story or, you know, I have an end result in mind. I want to get there. I want to get to the end. I want to get to the finish line. I want to realize the vision as uh, and by the way, it's not just, you know, I'm not trying to realize a vision that is that is separate and apart from the artist's vision or the performer's vision. I, you know, sometimes I get to work with artists and some, most of the time I, I work with performers. <laughs> but I, I know there's there's a difference there is for a sure. Distinction. Yeah. But yes. um, yeah, so it's, it's always a shared vision. It's our vision. This is what we're building. And then when we get to that point where it is putting the pieces together, I want to be the person that does that. I love it. I love the process of it. I love the massaging of things and, and changing, you know, picking up a phrase from this verse over here on the third take and putting it in that verse over there on the fourth take, which is our master. And it just works there. And it's just like, you know, so I love that. What does it say about your brain that it can work like that? Because some, not everybody can say, oh, oh I'm going to take that one on the third and put it over there. That's, that, your brain has to work in a particular way to, to be able to, to I guess, have that, you know, my uh, wife and I were actually talking about it this morning because we play these word games, right? And I, and, okay. and I just look at it and I go, there it is. And she goes, oh, you're so smart. And I go, no, it's not that. I, have, I can see patterns in uh, things and it's kind of, from that, because that's the way I work, you know, that's, that's the way I, I don't know. But I do know that this is the same thing that Trent Reznor did was he gave me a box full of stuff. Yep. And I sat in front yep. of a, a Pro Tools, you know, rig and put the stuff up like this and started to see patterns and things in it and started. And by the way, that's a very childlike thing because kids can do that. They can do it until yeah. we take away the, yeah. until we take away the ability. I'll tell you a story. So yeah. I met this woman who was, who was a teacher. She was an educator. And she, her first job was in the Northwest Territories. She was in a remote village and she was teaching little kids. She went into the class and she said, uh, okay, today let's draw an airplane. 
And everybody's kind of looked at her like, um, not because they had never seen one, the, the airplanes were bringing in their supplies all the time, but they weren't really sure what she meant, draw an airplane. Okay. So one little boy sat down, he said, okay. And he drew the side view, the top view, the inside of the cabin, the underneath it, you know, like everything he knew about an airplane, he put it on that page and he said, there's my drawing of an airplane. And she, and at first she was going to say, no, that's not what I was talking about. But then she had a moment of, it was like an epiphany where she looked and went, actually, that is an airplane. And what we think about it is a two-dimensional representation of an airplane. And it's a way of illustrating that kind of thinking that has been beat into us. And, and where it ended up for her, by the way, was she took the desks out of the classroom and let the kids like sit on the floor and move things around. And she put them, she let them live in a three-dimensional space. So um, I can give you six matches and put them in your hand like this and say, build me okay. four unilateral triangles. So I give you that. And most people will get immediately put them on the tabletop and start trying to build. It's not possible. You can't do it. It's impossible okay. in two dimensions. The four unilateral triangles are a pyramid. Yeah. It's the only way to do it. A three-sided pyramid, right? Yep. The only way to do it. So that's got to be our approach to creation that we can't, you know, as we go on through life, it's almost that that three-dimensional view of the world, spatial imagination, the play, kids, you know, okay, I'm I'm so and so and you're so and so and we're I'm this and I'm yeah. that and that's my that's my fort. And this is the castle and this over here is that it's not it's a tree but in there they see the fort in the tree. And yeah. sooner you know or later over time we convince them that it's not a it's not a fort at all it's a tree. It's just yeah. a tree. Take a look. There's no fort there. And so we take the play away. We take the play away. And for creative people they are quite able to do that. So creative people the like really great creative people David Cronenberg can close his eyes and imagine how to get a video cassette out of someone's stomach. In and out of someone's stomach. <laughs> Amen. Right? Amen. Then yeah. he can see it. Because yeah. that's a video cassette and that's a stomach and they don't go together, but he can see it. <laughs> he can imagine it. Yeah. I'm, I must imagine occasionally you've been bored by a song or, and then thought, okay, that's not done. And I hear musicians sometimes say, well, it's all been done. There's only so many chords. I, but I get the sense from you that that's not how you feel about music, that you're still so addicted to it and inspired by it. You were mentioning Kendrick Lamar. There are moments and artists that still touch you to this day. Oh, I'm, I'm amazed by it every single, are you yeah. kidding? Every day, you know, if I put on, if I just, you know, go randomly on Spotify and let it roll or I don't, I don't find myself in the presence of radio as much as I used to. I used to love radio. That was my best friend. Yeah. And um, I learned an awful lot from listening to faraway radio, from, from stations in Wheeling, West Virginia, or, or even uh, Tucker's Watch out of New Orleans, with sometimes on a, on a day when there was big landscape that you could actually pick it up in Toronto and listen to the country music. Yeah. Really? And cool. It was a, and it was a yeah. country station in New Orleans, which is yeah. weird. Yeah. But um, yeah, I love, I listen and I hear some of this new stuff and it, you know, some of it blows my mind. Some of it 
feels pretty samey to me. I feel like we've gotten very um, safe now. We're more about what worked yesterday than ever before. You know, that worked, so we're gonna do that again. Or that worked for so-and-so, I'm gonna do one of those. I feel, I see a lot of emulation and Me Tooism and a lot of similarity to sound and some of the same producers doing all the records, you know, same sound, same people. Yeah. So um, I'm not as often um, surprised as I used to be in some of the golden eras of music. That's a nice way of putting it, right? We used to get surprised a lot. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we can get surprised. An artist like Kendrick or maybe The Weeknd or something like that, you can be surprised by something. A Dua Lipa comes out and, and, and Dua just Lipa has knocks song after socks song. Off. Me too. You know, yeah, and even you. Ed Sheeran, by the way. There are times when, yep. you know, I hear an Ed Sheeran song and I just go, whoa, that is yep. so good, you know. And, uh, and Taylor Swift. I think Taylor yep. Swift is a brilliant writer. And Do you think something like The Wall could happen again? No. It's not possible. We're in, we're in the world of short attention span theater. Yep. Um, unless, unless it was not an audio-only experience. It, it could happen as the foundation of a limited series on Netflix or Apple TV or something like that. You know, there could be a Baz Luhrmann-style wall, you know, maybe. But... Um, Musicals are, are surprisingly successful these days, which is really interesting because we, we left them behind Isn't that decades something? ago, yeah. right? So it's possible it could happen like that. But as an album, no. I don't even think albums exist anymore. You know, when people say, we're going to make an album, I go like, what's that? You know? Yeah. What is an album? I don't even know what an album is anymore. Uh, and, and now, there are, it depends on who you're making it for. There are certain acts that sell in territories where physical product is still a big deal so people actually buy cds where they buy yeah. something fewer and fewer though yeah fewer, fewer and fewer. fewer yeah but in those markets it's good to have an album's worth of stuff because that justifies the expense of a cd or an lp or some other format like that and they can you know the record company can make more money they can make more money and then you know they it also allows them more room to express themselves and have some fun. You know, Bob, some of the songwriters I've talked to who put, still put out albums are just people who are prolific. They're just like, I'm writing them all anyway. I may as well put them out. Yeah. And, and we, I don't have enough time. If I, if I only released singles, I should stop writing songs for two years because I got too many songs. You don't have to do that. I disagree with that no. point of view completely. I say, you know, if you write... No, I, no, I'm saying that's what they would do, but just because they want to put them out. Right. They want to put them out. So when you write the yeah. song, put it out. What are yeah. you waiting for? <laughs> they go like, I want to put yeah. out 50, you know, I'm, I'm writing all these songs. I want to put out 50. I'm going to get 15 great ones and put them all out. No, the day you write this song, finish it, put it out. Let's yeah, do that, it. Well, then you're, you're going to have labels getting in the way of that one because exactly. they want to, you know, yeah. <laughs> the business is going to jump in the way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I think we're, we're getting to a point where that's happening more and more. Where, you know, it's single songs released and... And, uh, you know, small EP-like things. I don't even know what... These terms mean nothing anymore. I know. Because we're in a streaming world. It's like, what are you putting out? Music. What do you got? I got some music. I want to put it out. Okay, great. Let's hear it. Would you work with a brand new artist right now? Somebody that was completely unproven in the marketplace and just, uh, uh, you know, some, you heard a, like a little demo or something? Only under the best of, of circumstances. And, and yep. why that is because... 
with a new artist, you know, comes a, a whole other level of interference and pressure from other, you know, from other parties, right? It's, there's yeah. a, now there's a label that you have to listen to, and there's a manager that has a particular viewpoint, and there's just a bunch of other people involved in the process. When you're dealing with somebody who's established, those people just do what what the artist tells them, you know, what the artist wants. Yep. They're there to make it happen. And I far prefer that because it gives us license, right? And the other thing about a new artist is, you know, they, it, it's a lot of, it's, you know, I hate to say this because I'm, you know, it makes me sound lazy. I'm not lazy, but, but it's a lot of work. It is a <laughs> lot of work. There's no shorthand, right? And, yeah. I, and it's not a matter of laziness. You know what I am is I'm um, inherently impatient. My dad had a friend who was a brilliant entrepreneurial businessman when I was a kid, and he loved me. He used to put, we used to play chess and everything. And he goes, you know what the secret of success is? And I go like, no, you know, what is it, buddy? And he says, it's impatience with a sense of timing. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I like that. And, but that's me, you know, like I'm, I'm impatient. I do have a sense of timing, but I am impatient. And, and sometimes impatience doesn't really help, yeah. you know, young starting out artists, like they, they feel the pressure. Um, it's not that I'll never do it. If somebody really amazing comes along that I absolutely go, holy crap, this is phenomenal and I have to do it. Yep. I will. I don't get to see them very much because most of those come through labels or through something like that. And all the work that I get is really, really very direct. Like either the, because I know these people, right? So either they or their managers come up and go, what are you doing? And, you know, what are you doing in June? And that's the way it works. And that phone keeps ringing, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I keep, you know, expecting, I wait for the other shoe to fall. You know, I keep expecting it to just stop. And, and at this age, I'm, I'm good with it. You know, if that, yep. if that were to happen, I'd be like, okay. And because I, there's a lot of other stuff that I want to do as well. I'm looking forward to having the time to, to accomplish. Did you get in trouble for taking the piano apart? No, I put it back together. I had, I had, I had trouble, but I did get it back together. Yeah. Yeah. Before my <laughs> parents got, a... before my parents came back, this was, this was our cottage on Lake Simcoe. So, and I, and I used to. They never knew you took it apart? I think I'm sure I told them at some point, but um, okay. But I used to go up there. I would go by bus from <laughs> Toronto. I would go from the bus station down on Dundas, and we would go up yep. Woodbine. There was no Don Valley Parkway. We would go up Woodbine to uh, Lake Simcoe. It would take about two hours to get there yeah. by bus with stops all along the way, and then I would go stay in the house by myself. I was always the you know, one of the things that I'm most grateful for uh, from my parents is that being the eldest son, I was given a lot of responsibility and consequently a great deal of freedom. So they didn't worry about me. You know, I, yeah, you want to go for the weekend to Lake Simcoe? I was 12. You want to get on the bus and go up to Lake Simcoe for a weekend? Sure. Go. They didn't worry, which was great because it allowed me yeah to explore and have amazing experiences that I wouldn't otherwise have had. I love it, man. You dove inside that piano. You've, you know, just explored the inner workings of the music industry for, for decades and uh, we're all richer for it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Bob. It's a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening. This has been Storytellers. Join me, Paul McGuire, live this summer with Kim Mitchell 
Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, 5440's Neil Osborne, and many others. For an experience you'll remember always. The 97 South Song Sessions Songwriters Festival is happening this July, the 21st to the 23rd, in Penticton, British Columbia's incomparable wine country. An intimate, bluebird-style music performance that features songwriters in the round, playing their hits and relating stories of a life in music. Tickets and information at 97southsongsessions.com. Download the free Stingray Music mobile app and listen to the 97 South Song Sessions channel today. Stingray Music. Life's on you. Music's on us.